0: Hello, I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your
1: therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health.
0: Every episode we interview a healthcare professional. It's sometimes serious, sometimes sad, most times ridiculous. This week we welcome Ayana Ali, who works as a
1: licensed clinical social worker and a women's advocate.
0: Welcome everyone to Therapist Next Door, the podcast that's used the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing someone in a helping profession, asking questions that you want the answers to, and answering questions you didn't know you had.
1: I'm Joanna, a board-certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white, straight, cisgendered female, and my pronouns are she, hers, and I recently learned a new instrument. What was well, your instrument? It is the... Um, european dulcimer i
0: thought gossamer as soon as you (laughs) said that (laughs) it's um what's a dulcimer
1: it's not a hammer dulcimer if you've seen a hammer dulcimer they're like huge almost poly i never mind i'm trying to explain geometry um this is more like a like a long board Mm -hmm. that has strings on it and most of the strings are drones so it's kind of similar to a bagpipe in that like there's one string that you do the melody on and then there's drones on the other it sounds really cool I think it's a very American instrument even though I said I have a European one Um, but Mm -hmm. it's a very Appalachian instrument if you look up videos there's very sweet Appalachian men teaching you how to how to play it and it's a lot of fun Um, it's I really like the drone aspect of it my parents mm-hmm. got it for me for Christmas. So I, because you play it on your lap, so it's much easier to mm-hmm. play with a large belly than a guitar. Um, so it's it's very cool. That's I, really I, neat. I do really you
0: like. do you do you strum with a pick? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think I saw someone playing one of those recently. Actually, um, they are really cool, and they sound like the strumming also can sound very. I mean, like a stringed like. Like yeah. more tenored guitar, but also like you said, the drones. So just just a happy memory. One of my first impressions of Joanna was her bringing her didgeridoo to <laughs> the class. <It's> like... <laughs> so speaking of drones, anyway, yeah. just like yeah, like a beautiful, peaceful kind memory it's, oh that's a,
1: I love yeah. that did you do I got it because uh, you know my I'm pretty easy to buy gifts for because you just buy me a crazy musical instrument yeah, I love yeah. it I played it in like a new music ensemble it was so much fun because I was like singing into it and playing it at the same time and it sounded like really ethereal that was one of my fond memories of did you do and I also loved bringing it to class um it's a oh cool yeah to do. so oh,
0: that's incredible so what european dull I'm, i keep thinking it's like sweet or yes it does is, sound pretty but sweet is, but it's not like dolce. okay <laughs> sorry <laughs> i'm thinking all right and i'm sarah <laughs> hi hi i'm an lpc from pennsylvania transplant from south jersey i'm a cis white woman I pronouns are she her and i you know what i'm getting I'm, I have a vegetable garden that's doing very well. I'm very Hell proud. Hell yeah.
1: What vegetables? <laughs> I, I forgot to ask you.
0: Yeah, totally. We have two different kinds of tomatoes, uh, big boys or whatever, what our neighbor requested and Cody wanted, uh, the little, um, the grape tomatoes and we have, uh, peppers, we have jalapenos, we have eggplant and oh one goodness. more that I'm remembering that I'm not remembering right now. That's but like, like cucumbers. Well. I can't yeah cucumbers and we got a little trellis up there that we built oh my gosh I don't know it's it's like I'm really as I've mentioned every week I really love the little oasis that we're developing and it's our, beautiful in I recently saw yard. it yeah, so yeah it's you. great yeah so you know I, we are completely self-sustaining and everything could shut down today and we'd be fine mm-hmm. that's a joke we wouldn't be fine we'd be very hot oh my gosh um, I wouldn't be buy my hypo my like cat's allergy food (laughs) like like these things if society were to completely break down
1: yeah my dog is on a special food as well and also if my air conditioning broke uh I would probably go on a rampage right now
0: (laughs) well yeah and that's and I mean today's nicer here in like I seem like I'm sweet
1: but not when I'm hot
0: that's I mean that's just like your natural body response right like we all yeah. I had that first a- heat anger the other day I like <laughs> put on a I so like long story who you may not all want to hear it but I ordered a shirt <laughs> online and it was the wrong size and I still tried it on and I like got like almost stuck in it and I couldn't get it <gasps> oh on. my gosh I was also like hot and I just like immediate rage you know just but like you're <gasps> I don't know. Like evolutionarily, I'd like my body to respond by being calm in that moment and letting me get out of the trap and not no. <laughs> I understand that it needs to get me hot. And, you know, needs to get me angry so I can fight. fight I guess the tiny, the tiny shirt. <laughs> I, um, there was one time I,
1: I was, this was, I was an adult, um, living at my parents' mm-hmm. house and, um, their air conditioning broke down and it was like a heat wave and I was working in a place that did not have air conditioning coming back to a house that did not have air conditioning and my grandparents lent us an air conditioner and it was decided that it went into my room just for everybody's sake
0: because I was just like I can't deal with this yeah I I'm thinking about the first time we got an air conditioner in my childhood home and that was the only one in the house I, I couldn't sleep yeah like you know when was that like two thousand, two thousand four? 2004 yeah I don't know I mean it's a necessity at this point and it's anyway yeah my vegetable garden's going great <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic oh yeah, thank you so much
1: um do you have any housekeeping besides your vegetable garden that you are no,
0: keeping I am keeping it um no no more thoughts about Wonder Woman I did watch Morbius last night <laughs> how is that it's not a good movie jared leto is not he's not jesus but he like is so i don't okay okay i don't you know call 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 us in on when we open up the hotline and tell us your thoughts on (laughs) jared leto's christ-like uh persona yeah really bad movie though um Sorry, that's not housekeeping. Yeah, uh, I, I think, I <laughs> think I'm good. you watch
1: last night? I watched Shark Tank last night. That's what I watched. Oh,
0: beautiful. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. <laughs> did everyone? Did their dreams come true? I don't they know did. what all happened. of their <laughs>
1: capitalist dreams ca- came. Okay, true. I'm always like, I'm always like, yeah, just for you, not for everyone. Like, it's it's kind <laughs> of a nice practice for me to be angry at the TV. I don't know. Uh, Hell
0: yeah, I love that growth. I mean, you know, anytime someone is like. And that's probably not you. That might not even be growth. That might be just something that was there naturally. But anytime someone's like, "Oh, you know, I had it hard. Oh, did you? Did you have it hard when you got your? How much money do they get for their business idea?" It depends. Oh shit. Okay, I'm gonna not give my yeah. opinion until I know everything. <laughs> um, yeah. And like they they
1: say these things like everybody needs a chance if it's like a crying uh, white woman, <laughs> but if it's anybody else, they're like, no. Nah. Nah. No, uh yeah but you know I might have added some things to my baby registry <laughs> I was like oh that's cool beautiful so you uh, know yeah
0: well we <laughs> I'm on season five good... of
1: 13. So...
0: Jesus Christ we did absorb some good content last night uh we did decide that we're deleting Netflix Ooh, in like a month. Yeah. nice yeah
1: I think that's coming for us too. I mean, like we—I use my parents' Netflix, but um,
0: I think it's like not even logged on on one of our TVs. So yeah, you know, yeah, and their practices are like becoming less and less. Yeah, I don't like. I'm feeling more comfortable these days. Like, there's more now. There's like options now, and we're able to like say no to things that we're not really like agreeing with, which is really uh, that is like one tiny, tiny aspect that is cool about our current. Yeah. Now we just need a uh, competitor to Verizon and Comcast, and we'll be fine. What? And most other things. All right. Yeah. But no housekeeping for me. <laughs> I was just about to go on a
1: on a on a on a story about how I've been like blacklisted from Xfinity, but oh. like my phone number. Um. Anyway. <laughs> Solid. Uh. Yeah. So I don't have any housekeeping. Uh. So that's it. But stay tuned after the break for our lesson for today.
0: So usually at this time we would offer folks a history lesson, but since we have so many history lessons on social work in our earlier episodes, we want to just get right to this amazing interview. So stay tuned, feel free to look back at episodes, including uh, episode eight uh, with sickle cell disease. We also have episode one and episode six, I believe that have a lot of history of social work in there, Joanna. Um, So I think you can just check that out and why don't we start this amazing interview? Yeah, I'm so excited.
2: Ayana Ali is a licensed clinical social worker and a coach with 22 years of professional experience. Having worked with a diverse client population and in a variety of settings, she now specializes in the treatment of women living with debilitating anxiety. Ayana also works intensively with women suffering from the trauma experienced as a result of infertility and pregnancy loss. She is committed to providing a safe space for women, not only to grow in, but to heal and thrive in as well. Welcome. (laughs) Sorry.
1: (laughs) Welcome, Ayanna. We're so glad to have you.
3: I'm glad to be here. Thank you.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do?
3: Sure. I am a licensed clinical social worker, so I provide psychotherapeutic services. I'm based in Brooklyn. And my practice centers around women, um, you know, particularly women of color, particularly Black women. But I also you know, see everyone. But that's really the focus, um, the population that I target in terms of services. And I work with a lot of women who are you know, educated, successful career-wise, um, but as people of color sometimes experience anxiety whether it's due to working in corporate settings where they feel othered, or they are, you know, one of few or maybe the only. And um, I work a lot with trying to help them, you know, manage those symptoms and understand the role that racism plays in the development and the proliferation of their anxiety and how to manage that. Um, I also have a really niche population that I work with, which are women who are living with uh, pregnancy loss and infertility, and um, that is part of my story. And not only do I serve that population of women, and you know, and their partners, but also um, I talk about the racism that's inherent in Black maternal welfare. And, um, I work with a lot of people who have been victim of racialized medical mistreatment or racialized medical malpractice. And unfortunately that's part of my story as well. So, um, those are my main two populations that I serve and those two populations at the heart of my work. That's amazing that you do that work. Yeah, (laughs) unfortunately, (laughs) um, you know, it is a combination of my professional and personal experience. And sometimes that can be great, you know, in your work, when you're bringing your own set of experiences into your professional and combining it with your professional knowledge, sometimes it's not. But in my instance, in my case, I feel like it's really a calling. And uh, I am an anxious person. I think a lot. Um, And I have suffered with both primary and secondary infertility, as well as a number of pregnancy losses. And I have unfortunately had situations in which I felt that I was not heard or mistreated by uh, medical cl- clinicians and clinical staff. And it really shaped my experience as a woman and as a mother. And um, I think that that's just something I feel really passionate about. So
2: yeah, All right. <laughs>
1: I just want to also say that as we're recording this, we're recording this way before it comes out in September. So I am still pregnant um, <laughs> and I'm probably going to speak from my experience and what I've just experienced so far in connecting with other uh, other pregnant people. Um, I just want to say that right off the bat. Um, that would, if I'm like, oh, well, in my experience, and someone's linked to this and they're like, what did she talk about? She's pregnant. Right. Um, but Yeah. <laughs> I, Good call. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, especially like, I, I might've said this in another episode, but especially connecting with other pregnant people across the country and just like how vastly different care can be for pregnant people is like, mm-hmm.
3: it's yeah. incredible. I mean, I think sometimes the quality of care that you receive can be, um, it can be drilled down to the doctor or the nurse who you mm-hmm. Sometimes it depends on the facility in which you receive emergency care or the facility, you know, that provides your OBGYN care. And um, it's really scary. I think one of the things that I realized when I was pregnant with my daughter, who's now five years old, and that was the only full-term pregnancy that I've ever carried, is that being pregnant, you know, you really kind of are walking the line between life and death because. Uh, on the one hand, you're creating this life and, you know, you're carrying this other life with you wherever you go. But on the other hand, you know, if you experience an an emergency or just if you have a sense of something's not going right and you're not heard or you're not listened to or taken seriously, it can quickly lead to something that could be fatal for you or for your baby. And so um, it's really scary that, you know, depending on what type of clinician that you encounter, one who really is, is um, interested in listening to their patients or trust their patients, you know, things can go well or better than they would have. Or if you're dismissed or you're in a hospital that's totally overwhelmed or in a medical practice that's totally overwhelmed, you know, being dismissed or not heard can really have terribly adverse effects on you, your pregnancy and the birth of your child or the death of your child. And for black women, black women are three times more likely to die um, during pregnancy or during delivery. And so for someone like me, it's, you know, a black woman, it's very important that we understand what we're up against when we're in these settings, such as, you know, clinics, doctor's office, ERs, and um, it's, it's scary. It is scary. You know? think
0: of what we're up against. Yeah, I'm really thinking about, I mean, we talk so much about how like institutional racism for law enforcement and education and in healthcare, but really getting the details of what women of color are having to deal with Mm -hmm. on top of the sexism for just listening to women that are giving birth or in the process of, you know, trying to conceive or even, you know, maintaining pregnancy. Um, I know there's a lot of conversation now about black women, especially not being offered pain management medication. Um, could you speak to that a little bit?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there um, was a study done. I'm sure there have been more than one, but there's one that I can't think of the name of the study, but it was pretty widely published that um, with medical students and they asked medical students if they thought that black people experience pain to the same degree as their uh, non Black counterparts. And whatever the statistic was, I can't remember it offhand, but it was amazing. And that many of the medical students felt that Black people just don't experience physical pain the way their non Black counterparts do. And um, there's also been evidence to find that in terms of prescription, you know, pain management and prescriptions that are offered, or when people are in the ER and they come in for something other than you know, pain, but they're experiencing pain as a result of some kind of medical condition that they tend to be prescribed pain management um, services or medication much more, um, much less than their non-Black counterparts. And there's this idea somehow that Black people are like superhuman and, you know, that we just don't encounter physical pain the way everyone else does. And that's not true. And not only is it not true, it contributes to people's suffering, you know, um, and unnecessarily so. So I think it, that that's a metaphor though, for the way that Black people tend to be treated in many clinical settings and that our pain tends to not be taken seriously. It's delegitimized. Um, or it's often thought as just kind of something that's part of our story. So it's not as disturbing or it's not as um, deserving of, you know, um, treatment or management as it is for other people. I mean, and I don't know, you know, what your medical particular medical experiences have been, but I've had some pretty difficult medical experiences in my life where I was in so much pain that I remember thinking like, Now I understand why people kill themselves when they're in chronic, when they have chronic pain, you know, not because I want to die, but because it's just so unrelenting Mm -hmm. and um, nobody seems to get it or they're just like, oh, just take this instead of that. You know, Um, the last time I had surgery, which had nothing to do with pregnancy, I distinctly remember saying to the hospital, the admitting whoever was taking like my information, I have a problem with Percocet for whatever reason, my body does not deal with it. Well, it makes me delusional. (laughs) It makes me hallucinate. Um, and they even gave me like a wristband that said that I was alert. I'm not allergic to it. I just don't do well on it. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: Um, but it also causes me a lot of suffering because you know, you're hallucinating and you're scared out of your mind. So I had the band that said, do not prescribe Percocet Sure enough, they prescribed me Percocet. I, it was some, it was like a a generic version of Percocet. I had no idea because I was totally out of it. Um, I was overly overly preoccupied with the amount of pain that I was in, and then also saying, "Well, I can't call and I can't complain because I told them that I don't deal with well with Percocet," and they gave me something else, you know. And it took me almost two or three days to realize that this. it's not not working for me. Not only am I in a a lot of pain, but I feel almost like I'm coming out of my skin. And so I had to go back to the ER and I had to sit around after having had major surgery in this, like, it wasn't even a waiting room. It was just horrible. But I went back to the hospital where I had had the surgery. And finally someone was like, oh, you're prescribed, you were prescribed Percocet? You're not supposed to have that, right? No. They switched me to another medication and immediately, like within hours, I was feeling better. But here I was thinking that I was an educated patient coming in saying like, this just doesn't work for me. Please give me something else. And no one heard me. And then I I would be, I hate to imagine what would have happened if I had had a true allergy to Percocet. For me, it just makes me extremely uncomfortable and psychologically unwell (laughs) or psychiatrically unwell. Um, But imagine if I had had a real allergy to that medication. And even though I had the ban, no one was listening, you know? So imagine that experience when you're trying to give birth or you're carrying a child and you just have a feeling like something's not going right, or I just don't feel well, or I don't feel my baby moving as much as I should, you know, these are all the kind of things that people wind up in L and D for or in ERs for. And often they're just not taken seriously.
1: I, I have, I had gone through a similar, I have narcolepsy and getting diagnosed with that
3: Mm -hmm.
1: was like very traumatizing because the main symptom is exhaustion. Um, So I was just told, Oh, it's just this. Oh, it's just that. You know, sleep, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, you're depressed. Oh, you're, you know, I go out, I was on Lyme disease medication for a whole summer <laughs> and wow. I didn't have Lyme disease. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, but it, that, like, in the back of my mind, when I'm considering going to LD, is like, oh, well, maybe I'm just, you know, I'm just like making this up. And, and that's what's really scary about this is that it just gets ingrained in you in that, like, what even even though the doctors there are like it's so good you came in all of this stuff my husband's like it's so good you call I'm still like I don't know if I should Mm -hmm. I don't know you know and I went in because my blood pressure was like extremely high um turns out my blood pressure machine is not accurate (laughs) (laughs) I, blood I luckily brought it to the hospital with me and my blood pressure was still high, but it wasn't like you're going to die high, which what it was, what it, what it had said. But, um, you know, even then I was on the phone trying to like talk to this doctor, like, I don't know, maybe it's the machine. And she was like, no, you need to come in right now. <laughs> okay. You know? And like, cause I was like, I feel fine. I don't feel like this is an emergency. And they're like, no, come in. Um, but it's just so scary that these are, are these as, as a woman, that's my circumstance as a white woman. And I cannot imagine yeah. how much even worse it is for people, for women of color and even like female bodied women of color.
3: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I'm very open about my own story, which is that, you know, the very first time I was pregnant, I had an ectopic pregnancy. Well, yeah, actually it was referred to as a pregnancy of unknown location because they weren't exactly sure you know where the fertilized egg had landed but they knew for sure it wasn't in the uterus and so I was prescribed a medication called methotrexate which is designed to stop cell growth and the idea is like wherever this you know fertilized egg landed it won't continue to grow because depending on where it has landed you know it could cause bodily harm yeah So I took the medication, and my doctor, my actual—I was being followed by a reproductive endocrinologist at that time. Um, You know, he gave me like a sheet of paper. There's like an this the i don't know if all practices do this, but his particular practice they had created kind of like a cheat sheet for everyone who had been diagnosed with either an ectopic pregnancy or a pregnancy of unlocation. He's like, if you ever wind up in the ER, he's like, you need to present this to the emergency room people so they can understand, you know, what you've gone through so far and kind of, you know, have some clues because unfortunately, exopic pregnancies are um, often misdiagnosed and often poorly treated. And many w- women wind up dying, you know, yeah. because the hospital or the doctor's office just don't really have a clue as to what's going on. So um, unfortunately for me, I had, I had been treated with methotrexate twice. Cause the first time they gave it to me, my pregnancy numbers were going down, but they weren't going down you know, enough. So I had a second round and then I was being monitored very closely by the doctor's office. So in the beginning, I think it was coming every two to three days, they were taking my blood. They were okay. measuring my HCG levels and it was going down. And then as time went on, you know the appointments became farther in between. Um, but for whatever reason, at my tube still burst. So the doctor said that he felt like what happened was that the methotrexate actually did what it was supposed to do and that it it shrunk the fertilized egg and it seems to have it never passed through the fallopian tube, right? So then when it got smaller, it actually went through the fallopian tube and kind of got stuck. So I I guess it was in a lot of denial because I had taken this medication twice. And I was like, oh, that was four weeks ago. And my numbers were coming down. My, my numbers were pretty low. And the doctor was like, you know, I think we're almost out of the woods, but I went to dinner with a friend and I started feeling sick. Actually, I had gone to lunch first and I had gone to like a buffet lunch and I started having pain in my stomach. And I was like, Oh, you probably got food poisoning. And I was like scolding myself for having gone to that <laughs> that place so much. Um, and then I started to feel better and I had had dinner planned with a friend and I went and I was just like, okay, I'm feeling a lot better. but while I was at dinner, like two or three times I had to get up and go to the bathroom because I just wasn't feeling well and I was sweating and it was just like you know, not well medically. And at one point I said to her, you know what, I can't finish dinner. I really think I have like a bad case of food poisoning. I'm just going to go to the nearest ER. And the nearest ER was a horrible, horrible hospital. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is how in denial I was. I was like, I, I drove myself, you know, I, oh my gosh. Right, I went past that hospital, and I was like, "No, the next hospital is like maybe two miles down the road. I'll just go to that one." You know, so I, here I am driving myself, going, well, "Yeah, it's just food poisoning." You know, I get to the ER and I explain. I said, "You know, I think I may have food poisoning, but here's the paper that my doctor had given to me and told me to present to the ER if I wound up in the ER at any point. Um, and just in case, here it is." And so. The first sign that they weren't listening to me should have been that the woman who was taking my information, she kept saying, like, oh, you had a miscarriage, right? And I'm like, No, I didn't have a miscarriage. I had an ectopic pregnancy. And she's like, Right, miscarriage, right? And I was like, okay. But I was so like feeling so poorly that I really didn't have the ability to like argue and everything. So um, you know, long story short, I get I finally get into the back in the ER. I was there for hours. My husband had to meet me there. They did a very cursory exam on me. They did not do a sonogram. They didn't scan me. Um, And basically the doctor was like, yeah, well, we're just thinking that what you're experiencing is the result of methotrexate. You should just go home because we really can't find anything. Just go home and follow up with your, your doctor. So that was like a Thursday evening. And he was like, when's the next time you're supposed to go to see the reproductive endocrinologist? And I was like, Tuesday, Tuesday morning. And he's like, okay, just follow up with that appointment. Um, and I went home, you know, and um, I was still having like stomach issues, but I was feeling much better. I went to bed. I woke up in the middle of either in the middle of the night or in the morning. And my husband had to literally like pull me up because I couldn't sit up on my own because there was so much pain And, um, I think on some level, I, I realized maybe this has to do with the ectopic pregnancy, but I really didn't want to believe it given all that I had gone through with like the two rounds of the methotrexate and the fact that I had just been in the ER the night before. And, um, I was like, let me call the doctor though. So I called the doctor. I spoke to my nurse and she was like, come in. She's like, it sounds like maybe like gall, your gallbladder. She's like, but of course, come in. Um, and so I drove myself to the doctor <laughs> downtown. <laughs> I picked my mom up on the way, though. Right, my husband went off to his meeting. I talked to my sister. My sister was going like somewhere in Manhattan. I, t- you know, and I was like, okay, I'm just gonna go. They're gonna check this out. And my regular doctor wasn't there that day, but his medical partner was there. And you know, they put me in the exam room. They um, Started to scan me and her, this doctor, her bedside manner was horrible. But she says, like, oh, well, I'm calling 911 right away. And I'm like, why? And she's like, oh, because you're too burst. And she's like, and your guts are floating around in blood. And I don't have anything here to um, resuscitate you. Now she says this, my mom is in the room. And I just remember seeing my mom like put her hands in her head. And I was just like, oh my God, you know. So I had walked into the doctor's office. of my own accord and I was carried out in a stretcher And then for the fun of it, I had to wind up going to the same hospital that I had gone to the night before, because that was the closest hospital to the office. And I was like, oh, I don't. She was like, I'm going to send you back to that hospital. And I was like, I don't want to go there. And she's like, well, that's the closest hospital. She's like, the next best hospital is across the bridge. And she's like, it's not that much further. She's like, but I would hate for something to happen to you, you know, and us trying to get you to a hospital a little bit farther away. So I went back to the same ER. Um, the good thing is that she had contacted the doctor who was like, I don't know if she's the head of obstetrics or something. Um, She's like, and she's going to wait for you and she'll be the one to perform your surgery. When I got to the hospital, it turned out that I actually had known her because a couple of years ago, before that, I had had fibroids removed and she was going to be one of the surgeons it wound up not working out but it wound up not working out but I knew her and so she's a black woman and um she met me when I came into the ER and I remember she like took my hand and she said like you're gonna be okay everything's gonna be okay and then um there was a resident who was a black woman my Uh, anesthesiologist was a black woman. The head nurse was a black woman. Um, and I just remember that on that day, like black women saved my life. Um, so for me, I was like, oh my goodness, you know? So it was like, I was dealing with both like the anger and the rage of the fact that I was not well evaluated the night before. And that my, um, I gave them a piece of paper with the information. I don't know what else I could have done, um, but that wasn't taken into consideration. And, you know, essentially I was sent home to die. I could have died if I had just said, oh, let me follow, you know, what they said and follow up on Tuesday. Um, And I thank God that there was an instinct that said like, call the doctor. So I was so angry, but at the same time, I was also so grateful because I was like, my life was saved. And it was so symbolic for me that the people who actually saved my life were black women. Um, and I think that that kind of was like what started, what led to this work for me, because I was like, I have to do something. Cause there's so many people out there like me, um, who maybe, um, you know, to your point, Johanna, like don't want to complain or feel like, oh, well they just told me to follow up on Tuesday. And because of that, they lose their lives or they lose their tube. I actually did wind up losing my tube. Um, but, you know, people feel, feel like they can't advocate for themselves. And I was like, I gotta do something about this because if I felt this way, I know there are other people who have felt the same way. So that's my specialization. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your story and
1: how scary that I, I cannot even imagine.
3: It was really scary. I remember I said to the, um, to the paramedic, I was like, am I gonna die? And she's like, not today. <laughs> she was also a black woman. She was, <laughs> she was like, we're not claiming that. And that's today. But I was scared. You know, I was so scared. And I was, you know, it was my first pregnancy. I'd never been pregnant. Um, and I just, I didn't know what to think, you know? So, so the, the pain of having lost the pregnancy plus this whole thing that I eventually lost my tube and it was just like trauma compounded with trauma, with trauma and trauma. So it was rough.
0: I thank you for sharing all that like what a uniquely what a uniquely curated experience for black women in America like black female bodies in America that you are not only having to deal like you're saying Ayana, with this fear this fear of what's happening to my body you know my body is in this moment I can't interpret what's happening there's like a some type of betrayal or there's some type of just thing I cannot understand right now and also that horror of not being able to go in somewhere and just thinking that folks are going to take care of you. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and it's important, yeah. the word that you chose, curated. I mean, so like mm. when we think of the word curated, we think of, you know, like an art exhibit or something. And we're like, you know, everything is carefully picked and chosen. Um, but sometimes it does feel like our experiences, our medical experiences are curated in the sense that we just, systematically time and time again, run run up against all of these obstacles. And even though there's so much information that's available to us about, um, you know, the disparities that exist for Black women and people of color in general with all kinds of, you know, medical illnesses, um, it still feels almost calculated and almost kind of carefully crafted to, um, you know, for us to not receive the kind of care That we deserve.
2: Hey everyone, Sarah and I are trying something a little different and we're going to start cutting our interviews in half. So, this is the end of part one. Uh, If you would like to listen to the interviews as a whole, you can subscribe to our Patreon and get it all at once. You'll get part one and two together. As always, please check us out on Instagram at TNDpod. On Twitter at TND Pod One, one is in the number one, or visit our website at TNDPodcast.com. And that Patreon is slash TND Podcast. Thanks for listening.